Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. We were off last week after the Independent Press Gallery leadership debate or the fireside chats as it ended up being a couple of weeks ago. I figured I'd earned a couple of days off. So last week I took a bit of downtime, got some stuff done, but we are ready to reclaim the world of political commentary and yes, irreverence with gusto. And this is actually a good time to be coming back because the conservative leadership race, if you're following it, is really coming to a close in just a couple of weeks. People have actually less than two weeks to send in their ballots to vote for the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And I had tried to do a debate with the four candidates. And of course, as you know, if you were paying attention to True North uh, last week or two weeks ago, I guess it was, things did not quite go as planned. We've talked about this in other fora, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it, except to say that it was really disappointing when one particular candidate who has a history of shirking independent media decided in the 11th hour, not because of illness, as Leslin Lewis uh, did, unfortunately, and she wanted to be there, but just because he didn't want to be to just bail on the interview, and that was Peter McKay, and it was quite unfortunate. We put a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of energy into this debate, and not only that, but it was also done at a time when there wasn't really any wiggle room, because this was the very home stretch of the race, just a few weeks at the time until ballots had to go in, so we were very disappointed by that. But the one thing that was really encouraging is how much support there was to what we were doing from the other campaigns, not from Peter McKay's campaign. They were, as we said, like jerking us around by putting out a statement that said they were wanting a postponement when in actuality they were just canceling. But Leslin Lewis's campaign was very apologetic. And Steve Outhouse, who's Leslin Lewis's campaign manager, was at the debate. He actually came down from Ottawa, even with Leslin Lewis being sick. And he was doing interviews there and explaining, no, we didn't ask for McKay to bail. We didn't want any of this. So that was very nice. And they were actually saying, listen, we really support independent media. Aaron O'Toole and Derek Sloan, both of their campaigns, very similar. They said, listen, we'll do whatever you want. So when we came up with the new format of doing the one-on-one -on -one interviews, it was something that I was really pleased with. And I, I know a lot of people tuning in were as well. And I'm going to play a couple of clips from those interviews later on in the show, because I do want to talk a bit more about the leadership race, which I haven't really been covering as closely for two main reasons. The first is that there hasn't been as much happening in the leadership race compared to how these things normally are. And the second is that because we were working on the debate, I was trying to avoid putting any real commentary into the mix about the candidates or the campaigns until after the debate was done because I didn't want anyone to be able to accuse me of having any sort of bias. So that's where we are now. And to be perfectly frank, I don't think that I would have uh, too much to say that I, I think people would, uh, you know, make me think, or that would make people think that I was favoring one over the other, with, you know, maybe one exception for who has uh, been a little bit frustrating throughout the course of the race in not wanting to do any interviews, not attending the debate, etc., 
But for the most part, Sheila Gunn-Reed of, of Rebel had actually said something that I, I thought was very high praise, which was that in my interviews, you wouldn't at the end of it figure out if I favored anyone and if I did who it was, which was exactly what I was going for. Because my goal as a small C conservative Canadian and, and as a broadcaster along that vein is to try to bring out the best and the most conservative side of people and, and talk about the issues that conservatives care about, the issues that I, as a conservative, would like to hear from someone who is wanting to lead the capital C conservative party or someone who is wanting to be the country's prime minister. So all of that is to say that we were trying to put an event forward and, and the debate was supposed to be this, that would focus on not the relentless like 20 questions about systemic racism or 20 questions about abortion, but a broad array of questions that conservatives care about that by and large the mainstream media hasn't been asking about. Because the mainstream media, to be fair, is never really that good at covering internal battles. It's not in their MO. They don't understand the dynamics. They don't understand how campaigning works. And this is a big problem, is that the type of people that are writing about what, what sort of a campaign is being run don't actually know how you win a campaign. Like, I remember when, when I ran for office in Ontario in 2018, uh, at one point my campaign had done what's called a, a tele-town hall, which is where you, you know, blast a whole bunch of people with a phone message and say, you know, at, at this time I'm going to call you back and Andrew's going to be taking questions from people in a, a telephone town hall. And they're actually really, really fun because for me it was just like hosting a, a radio show, except, you know, you're on the phone. And we had thousands and thousands of people out to this. And, and because we want people to be by their phones if they're interested, you give them a heads up earlier in the day and say, hey, tonight this call is coming. And uh, we had, uh, CBC had discovered that this was happening and they sent like this laundry list of questions to my campaign manager uh, saying, you know, what do you hope to achieve? Why are you doing this? And, and it was just like a very skeptical thing. And I'm like, because we're trying to talk to voters. That's how. That, that's what we're trying to do. It's, you know, no different than knocking on doors, except we're just doing it in a, a different way. So the media doesn't really get it, but especially on the ideological side, the media doesn't get what it is the conservatives care about, which is why when CBC did that interview with Aaron O'Toole and asked him about, hey, what do you think about CBC funding? And Aaron O'Toole went like completely guns blazing on them, talking about all the reasons that he's going to defund CBC's English programs and CBC's uh, digital platforms and all of that. And CBC cuts it. CBC cut the question out because, again, they don't realize that this is an issue that people actually care about and it threatens their existence. But you know what? For a lot of Canadians, it's something they're on side with. So this has been the, the huge dynamic that we're seeing where the media is interested in issues that the average Canadian isn't. And the extension of that is that you get some candidates like Peter McKay that want to win over the mainstream media, even though they're not the ones who are voting in the leadership race. They're not the target audience. In a general election, you can say that, yes, the mainstream media plays more of a role. But in a leadership, the people you want to be talking to are the people most prone to speaking to members, the people who have an audience that's most likely to be filled with the type of people who are voting in the leadership race, which at this point, very simple. People who have paid their, I think it's $15 to the Conservative Party of Canada. 
So all of that is, a, I think, a roundabout way of saying that right now, people are finally making these decisions. A lot of people sent their ballots in right away, but a lot of people are, are only now making their decisions because they've been waiting just to hear what everyone has to say. And one of the interesting things in this race is Leslin Lewis's rise from being a former losing candidate in Scarborough to being someone who I, I think will play Kingmaker. I'm going to say right now, I don't think she's going to win, but I think she will certainly transform the race. And, and the one thing we know about the Conservative Party is that social conservatives occupy a large enough chunk, a large enough block, that they are the Kingmakers. They can be the Kingmakers time and time again, which is why to call them a stinking albatross a la Peter McKay, or to say they don't matter, to scorn them, is not going to get you anywhere in a race, generally speaking. So Leslin Lewis came out, and again, completely an unknown. No one knew who she was when she stepped forward. And I think that, that you know, for her to have taken that and become a major player in this is something that's commendable. And I, I did a sit-down interview with her back in March during my conservative leadership series, and we talked about all manner of things. And I'm not going to lie to you, at the end of it, I was kind of like, what's the big fuss? I, I don't really get the big deal. And it's not to say that there was anything wrong with her answers. It's just that I didn't get this. I felt like I was the emperor wearing no clothes uh, kid where everyone else is talking about how wonderful she is. And I'm like, okay, I want you to put in your time first. And that's the thing. And to be honest, you could make the same criticism to Derek Sloan, and certainly you could make it about uh, Rudy Husney, who was uh, seeking the leadership as well, and Rick Peterson, which is to say, if you're going to run, I want you to have had some time doing something in politics. And, and the in politics part, I, I think, is the part that a lot of people are uh, haggling over. Because in the case of Les Lewis, she has done a lot. I mean, she's very well educated. She's had a law practice. She's done a lot. But as far as working within the political system, she hasn't. And for a lot of people, that's a selling point. I mean, what's the comparison everyone makes now in everyone? Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump was the guy that completely eschewed the standard rising up through the ranks of politics politics and just rose up through the corporate world and then jumped into politics. But you want someone that has shown a commitment to building the movement and building the conservative movement is a, a big thing if you are a conservative voter. And that's where my issue with Leslin Lewis has been is that I haven't seen from her beyond this leadership race a long-standing connection to the conservative movement. And that's something I want to see from someone. That's something I want to see. It's not just about saying the right things. It's about actually having been involved and really started shaping some of these. Because there are a lot of issues that I've seen Leslie Lewis speak of, whether it's been in a debate or in my interview with her. And the response that she gives is one that I'm like, I, I'm not sure you've contemplated this before. And it's not to say that there's anything wrong with that. It's that when you are running in a leadership and you're running to be prime minister, you have to be able to answer on anything and everything. And so that's Leslie Lewis. And I, I'm going to shift to Derek Sloan now because Derek Sloan is another one where when he ran or initially announced he was running, my first response was, OK, like, who are you? You're a first-term member of parliament. Remember, the leadership race was just a few months after the election. He had just been elected. I'm like, why? Why is he running? And again, I, I was very impressed with a lot of the stuff he said, as with Leslin Lewis, because he was checking off 
a lot of these small C conservative boxes, but I'm like, have you put in your time? And, and, you know, it's one thing to have been elected as a member of parliament once, but beyond that, what is it that you've done? And in the case of Derek Sloan, he has been involved in some of these cultural battles. He worked with a group and was an intervener in the Trinity Western case. So he certainly has fought on some of these cultural conservative issues and these conservative leadership battles, which was, I think, a point in the right direction. But then the the exchange with Derek Sloan that I, I thought was important was when we were doing our fireside chat a couple of weeks ago, when you have so many in the party against you, when you have so many people in the party that are, are saying, including in the Conservative caucus, you know what, we are not a fan of you, we don't even want you in the caucus, let alone leading the party, how are you going to navigate that? And th this was, I, I thought, an important question, and a lot of people actually criticized me for pushing him on this because they thought I was trying to, I don't know, like railroad him or something like that, and I said, no, it's, it's a sensible serious and important question. If you have made enemies just by virtue of being you and talking about the issues you're talking about with the people who form the Conservative Party, how are you going to broach that if you're elected? And this was what Derek said. You had MPs in your own caucus that after you had called for Theresa Tam to be fired, wanted you kicked out of caucus in the middle of a leadership race. And you can talk about people's motivations for that, whether they may have had an allegiance to another leadership campaign, but still there have been people that have spoken up that have said they do not see themselves being able to serve under a Derek Sloan-led caucus. And you can say they're wrong, you can say that they're perhaps having a narrow view of it, but even so, if you are a leader, how do you unite that when you've got people that don't even want you to just not win, but don't even want you in the caucus? How do you serve and unify a caucus like that? Some people think the party is about the caucus, the party is about the members. We all serve at the leisure of the members. If I am given the honor of leading this party, it will be because of the members. And so the caucus, it's up to the caucus to recognize and respect the members who, who put them there to begin with and elected the leader that they want to lead the party. So um, I believe, I firmly believe that the caucus will fall behind anyone who is elected. But at the end of the day, there is this attitude that it's about the caucus and you know we're in Ottawa and we're important. We're not important. It's the people that put us there, and that's why I'm here, and I will never betray them. You can say that the members put the caucus there, and if you're successful, the members will have put you there, and that is accurate, but, but even so, leadership is about unifying rather than dividing. So I'm not accusing you of dividing, but you have divided people against you, whether it's by your fault or not. So even if you say the caucus isn't the be-all and end-all, what's your approach going to be? as leader with these people, because you still will have to manage them. Caucus management is still a part of the role of leader of the Conservative Party. Well, you know, I've, it's interesting because I've been very clear that I believe that votes should be free in caucus. So for people who don't agree with me on certain things, I'm, I'm, I'm not sitting here saying I want to twist their arm. They, again, their, their, uh, their mandate is to do what they feel their constituents elected them to do. So I have no problem with, uh, with a caucus member voting according to their conscience, even if it's a different conscience than I have. Um, you know, but I do believe that, that this leadership race is exposing certain fault lines in the party. And you know, when you move from a place, when you're moving you know, from, from, from A to B or from a good place to a better place, it's never easy. I mean, if it was easy, then everybody would do it. Uh, but, but improving, moving to a, a place where we can become the dominant political force in this country uh, takes certain risks. It takes stepping on certain toes, and it's an inevitable outcome of being able to win.
And so um, I'm not surprised that this has happened, but um, I'm, not, I'm not concerned. Every, everyone loves a winner, and uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I've experienced this before. People say all kinds of things about you before you win, and then when you win, they're your best friends. So we'll, uh, we'll let that sort itself out. So whether you like or dislike or agree or disagree with his answer, he gave an answer, and, and that was what I was going for there. And on the Aaron O'Toole side of things, I, I found it interesting that Aaron O'Toole has talked about being a true blue conservative through and through. And I think on a lot of the issues, again, he's coming out and talking about free speech and condemning cancel culture and doing all of these things. But it is very difficult to not see there as being some sort of a transition between when he ran in 2017 and when he's running now. And he actually said when I spoke to him on my show a month or two ago that, you know, he's talking about the same issues. He says, if anything, uh, you know, he's always been the true blue conservative. Just this time the party has changed, so it makes him look more conservative than he is. And I, I don't really think that's entirely true in the sense that for Aaron O'Toole, he is certainly trying to pivot on tone if not message. He, he's trying to be a lot more of a firebrand, whereas in 2017, he was Mr. Nice Guy. And there's nothing wrong with being Mr. Nice Guy. Everyone likes Mr. Nice Guy, whereas right now he's coming out on the attack. He's attacking Peter McKay. He's attacking Red Tories. He was, uh, and I, I don't mean attacking in a negative, but just coming out in a negative fashion against these uh, other people and, and issues and stuff like that. So I, I do think that there is a, a calculation there. It's not that he's being inauthentic. It's that right now he's saying, okay, we've got Peter McKay. He's going to shore up the red Tories. I need to find my space and carve it out to the right of him. And it's very much looked like that's been what's happening with Aaron O'Toole. But the one issue that I was really frustrated about, and this was what I wanted to talk to him about and get an answer, and it took a little while, but I think I got one, is where he stands on a carbon tax. Because this is something that's very important. And his platform had an item, and you'll hear it in my question in a moment, it had an item that seems to indicate support for a carbon tax, and Peter McKay's campaign has criticized him for it, but I had never actually heard anyone in the media or in anywhere else press him on this, which is why it goes back to needing to get an answer on issues the conservatives care about. And this is once and for all Aaron O'Toole's response to the carbon tax question. You say in your platform that the carbon tax is gone. You also say you want a national regulatory and pricing scheme on industrial emitters. And your rationale for this has been that you don't want to target individual Canadian families, but rather target the companies themselves. We all know that any cost that a company has to bear gets filtered down. So any tax that's put on a manufacturer or a distributor is something that Canadians are paying. So how can you say you're against the carbon tax when your plan seems to just move the tax to another payer? No, it, there is no tax. There's no federal carbon tax. I will eliminate the carbon tax completely, Andrew. What I've said in terms of the national framework, we have to respect what the provinces are doing now. In BC, there's been the, their provincial carbon tax started by Gordon Campbell. I've talked to, to him about some of the challenges and problems that were caused, but he explained to me his rationale there. Quebec has a version of a cap and trade system. Alberta, Ontario, my own province has a large emitter strategy just working with emissions of the larger emitters. We need to follow the provinces here because guess what? They have shared jurisdiction on the economy. I've been saying this for years. The Court of Appeal in Alberta in February just supported my view when they said Trudeau's carbon tax is unconstitutional. 
we actually have to say on the federal government, how can we make sure we respect the different approach within a national framework and say this is how we're going to reduce emissions? Not with a tax, but with partnering with the provinces to get their emissions down. But does your platform, or does it not, say pricing? Because the provinces are pricing. But you say national pricing. So is there going, can you say that there is not going to be any federal price on carbon at a federal level for anyone, whether it's a family or an industrial emitter? The provinces will be in the driver's seat. So I will respect what they do. Look, two great conservatives, my friends Jason Kenney and Doug Ford, have large emitter approaches where they're stepping down through a price on carbon for emitters. What the provinces decide to do, often with the cooperation of industry, I will respect. And the national framework is because we are reporting a Canadian response, and we have to recognize we have a confederation. We have a national unity crisis because Justin Trudeau doesn't understand that. That's why the Wexit movement is gaining steam, because he has attacked the ability for certain provinces to live to their economic potential. I will respect that. In fact, I will empower it. My first 100 days so, is all natural resources. Just to confirm, but if, if they if want to work on reducing emissions and target working with and partnering with large emitters, why should Ottawa get involved, Andrew? We should say we are going to incorporate Alberta's approach alongside Quebec's approach. And we're not going to say this approach is bad and this one is good. We're going to say Canada's a diverse economy We've got an offshore in Newfoundland and Labrador as well that's in trouble now because of Trudeau. We are going to try and make sure that we have a national respected approach that allows the provinces to lead. But what if a province says they don't want any part of it? A provincial government in some province says we don't believe that we need to deal with emissions, we don't believe in a carbon tax. Does inaction fit into that national framework if that's what a province chooses? If that's what the province chooses, yes. So there you have it. So he says it's just simply about letting the provinces do it. And, and look, I'm not going to lie to you. I do think that he could have worded that a lot better because that's not what I was reading in the platform. But that's what he says on record, that he will not impose anything federally. He will just allow provinces to do what they want, even if that means do nothing at all, which I would encourage many provincial governments to explore. Which brings us fourth and finally to Peter McKay. And I want to say this because I do not have a vendetta against Peter McKay. I, I actually don't have any personal issues with him at all. I think I interviewed him when he was defense minister. I, I might be wrong about where it was, or maybe he was attorney general at the time. But I interviewed him on my old uh, terrestrial radio show at, at some point, and I, I've met him when I worked in Ottawa. He was around, and I've never had any negative issues with him. I know the side of the party that he comes from. He was the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada. But if you accept that it's a big blue tent, you have to accept that there are going to be red Tories and blue Tories. So I do not have any issues with him. When he ran, I said, great, let's hear what he has to say. And for Peter McKay to come out and say, you know, he's going to be the jobs prime minister, he's going to do this, he's going to do this. A lot of what he's saying is indistinguishable from what other candidates are saying. On firearms, he's as conservative as you need him to be. On the economy, he's as conservative as you need him to be. And when I was preparing for the debate, I was looking through all of the candidates' platforms with a fine-tooth comb, and there's very little in Peter McKay's platform. In fact, I don't think there was anything that I found expressly objectionable about the issues that he wants to raise because he's picking safe, unobjectionable issues. 
My only concerns with Peter McKay have been in his conduct throughout the leadership race. And lest this sound arrogant, it's not that I think everyone needs to, you know, bend over, kiss my ring, because I don't have a ring. Well, I do have a ring, but not like in a mob boss way. But I, I don't have this expectation that the Conservative Party leadership candidates know who I am and, and do my bidding. It's me as a stand-in for independent media here. If you are not prepared in a leadership race when you need to be talking to people who are in the Conservative base, if you're not prepared to sit down with independent media for interviews, then you are not prepared to address the Conservative base at all. Because we know, and, and this is, by the way, what happened with many other conservative leaders, where in the leadership race, they're all over conservative media, conservative talk radio. But then once they win, there's, oh, well, you know, I, like, you know they, they wanted to focus on CBC, CTV, Globe and Mail, and, and all these other places. And for someone to, in a leadership, and that's so important to not take the time to talk to independent media. That tells me they're not going to care about independent media once they are the leader. And that was my issue with Peter McKay. And that's something that's not even rooted in policy. That's rooted in an overall outlook. And I was already, and I, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, when, or a couple of months ago, when Peter McKay was the one single candidate to not agree to sit down for the conservative leadership series. In fact, to not even respond to the invitations. It was incredibly frustrating because we had this series that was meant to really just be a, a friendly introduction of the candidates to uh, the people watching, and we had to go one short. So then you take that and you compound it by throwing the last minute uh, withdrawal from the debate, in, the debate into the mix. And it's very difficult to have any confidence that independent media, and by extension, conservative media, would have any sort of uh, influence or access or even the ability to do the work if Peter McKay were the conservative leader. And that's just something I, I've had to reckon with based on the conduct of Peter McKay and his campaign over the last few months. And, and you can take from that what you will, but that's the concern that I have about this. So my hope would be that all candidates would say, yes, we think uh, the conservative base is important. Here's what we're doing. And unfortunately, not all of them did. So I've shared with you the frustrations I've had with each of the candidates and the positives that we've talked about. I, I mean, the positives, I, I think, are fairly clear. I think, by and large, most of them are putting forward conservative visions. Some are being more aggressive with it than others. And I do think that that is going to be a, a big big point moving forward that needs to be addressed, which is, are you prepared to actually transition this from your leadership race into your general election campaign if you are? And I, I think that the importance of people holding them to account on that. Uh, take a look at Andrew Scheer, for example. When he ran for the leadership, he talked about defunding CBC News. And then once he was the leader, we never heard of the policy again. So that, that being said, Aaron O'Toole was a bit more forceful on that. So uh, there's, there's more of his words to use rather than with Andrew Scheer. I think it was just an iPolitics story uh, that uh, quoted like an answer to a question he gave about something, but, but that's where we are now. In any case, we've got to take a quick break. When we come back more of the Andrew Lawton show here on true North. You're tuned in to the Andrew Lawton show. 
Well, we know that statues are coming down all over North America. Names are being stripped off of buildings. Not even outer space is safe from the cancel war scourge. This comes from The Guardian. NASA to change harmful and insensitive planet and galaxy nicknames. The space agency has said, the article writes, that certain cosmic nicknames are insensitive and they're going to spend time to identify and address systemic discrimination and equality, inequality rather, in all aspects of the field. And it's clear that that includes cosmic nicknames. So for example, uh, there's a planetary nebula called NGC 2392. I've been there. It's a lovely place known as the Eskimo Nebula, which is a dying sun-like star that's blowing off its outer layers, I'm told. But they said Eskimo is, quote, widely viewed as a colonial term with a racist history imposed on the indigenous people of Arctic regions. And then there are also uh, galaxies NGC 4567 and NGC 4568, which are referred to as the Siamese Twins Galaxy because uh, they are uh, now... (laughs) But but no longer are they the Siamese twins because Siamese twins is apparently no longer inclusive, as it says. And there are some that have been said uh, are inappropriate that they're keeping, like cosmic object Barnard 33, which is the Horsehead Nebula. That one gets to stay. Um, <laughs> but, uh, oh gosh. So here's my my issue with this, and I have a great many issues with it, but one of them is that the whole reason things have nicknames is because no one can actually remember NGC 2392, NGC 4567, NGC 4568, which I only know because I'm looking at now and will have forgot. Actually, I've already forgotten it. Uh, but but also, like, who is offended by it? I, I mean, I, I get, like, not naming new ones moving forward. That one I understand. Like, okay, you know, maybe we don't rename something Eskimo now because people have issue with it. Like, even the Eskimo pies are, are gone. But for crying out loud, like if we're actually saying that we have to go back and any object in space that's ever been named something is no longer. This is why in the future we're only going to get to call things by the numbers. Because the numbers, until we determine that numbers are problematic, uh, the numeric names are going to be the only things that are allowed. And incidentally, it isn't just space, uh, but also insects. The insect world is going through this as well. Where, and I have this uh, from Science Magazine, but I picked it up via the College Fix, scholars are targeting, quote, problematic common animal names, including slave maker, ant, gypsy moth, rape bug, and dozens more. Uh, the This is being led by... Arizona PhD candidate Aaron McGee, who is uh, running a popular uh, Twitter profile right now that has a campaign and has put forward a spreadsheet of 60 plant and animal species names that uh, her colleagues think are problematic. And this has been inspired by protest against racism, and they're deciding that they need to go after this. For example, uh, there is a Hottentatus, Hottentatus, I don't know, uh, but there is uh, some species that have Hottentot in their names from this Latin term, but apparently Hottentot was used as a racial slur against indigenous Africans during apartheid. See, I didn't know that. And I don't think that most other people knew that. And now we're changing not just the nicknames, but we're actually changing like the Latin species name of this because of something that was apparently used as a slur 
in a country 40 years ago, which again, I, I don't think is something that is good. I don't think that if we learn about this, we should actively name things after it. But when we're going back and amending longstanding Latin names that, by the way, exist in literature that people will be looking into when they are studying these things for the future and throughout until the end of time, Changing the names in science seems to create a lot more trouble than it solves. And, and when you decide that social justice is going to be the lens through which you view everything, you're not leaving yourself a lot of wiggle room to get out of this. And, and even, by the way, another story that I found in the college fix, a provo of University of Washington has been reprimanded for using the term mantra or mantra as some people say but mantra mantra because apparently this is now bias against buddhism <laughs> this comes from this is serious by the way when i go away for vacation this is what i come back to the university of washington provo mark richards sent a, an email to students saying that access and excellence are the school's mantra and they're working hard to do yada, yada, yada. And the term uh, was used in a sentence that was about excellence and standing up for, you know, all the values of the school. It had nothing to do with social justice, nothing to do with racism or anti-racism. But now the complaint has uh, triggered that many people in the Buddhist and Hindu community hold this term as a highly spiritual and religious practice or experience, rather, not to be used the way Mark Richards did with nonchalance. And instead of just saying, hey, you know, we really wish you wouldn't do it, it's now a violation of the school's rules on ethnicity, general climate, national origin, and religious slash creed, which means that the bias complaint is now going to mean that this guy is like a dirty, stinking racist until the end of his days on school. And uh, the diversity office has now been involved because, uh, you know, that's something that totally needs to exist. All because he used mantra. So again, pretty soon, no words are going to be allowed. So we as might as well just start communicating in grunts the way that the cavemen or sorry, cave people did, because that's the only non-problematic way of expressing ourselves in 2020. When we come back talking about an event coming to Ottawa, gun owners want to be heard. We'll talk about how they're going to make that happen up next on The Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Well, we know that since Justin Trudeau was elected, gun owners have been a group that the liberals feel they can go after with impunity. And there are a lot of things that play into this that we've spoken about in the past. The media not understanding guns, a lot of politicians not wanting to get in and have these discussions. But for the most part, any time I've spoken about firearms on this show, the volume of response it gets is huge. And not just from gun owners, but people that say, yeah, you know what, I, I guess I didn't actually know how ubiquitous gun ownership was in Canada. So it is important that people know that gun owners are here, they're a part of the country, they're not posing any problems, and hopefully get the politicians to stop picking on this group, to use a term that sounds trite, just because they feel it's politically advantageous to do so. Well, one of the big firearms groups in Canada, the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights, is hosting a big march on Parliament Hill, a march in Ottawa, that's coming up on September 12th. It's called the Integrity March. We'll talk about what exactly they hope to achieve with this with Rod Giltaka, the CEO and executive director of CCFR, who joins me on the line now. Rod, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So what's the point of this? So the point of this is uh, we don't 
we aren't we don't seem to be getting the uh, the proper focus on this conversation. Taking guns away from millions of Canadians is a big deal. It's a big problem. So we uh, we hope to show Canadians that maybe aren't familiar with what gun owners look like, who gun owners are, which is basically your neighbors and and uh, and the people in your community. Um, we also want to bring some attention to our issue um, because it's it's very difficult to get your message out in any long format, long enough to explain what the issues are on mainstream media. And of course, they're biased against us because they're getting a paycheck from the people that are want to confiscate the guns. So we're trying to get a little bit more national attention of what we're doing. And we also want to be there and accessible to mainstream Canadians. This is something that I find to be so important, uh, the idea of normalizing gun ownership. And for a lot of people, they were raised with guns. They know what they are. It's not a political thing for them. It's just a way of life. And then you get similarly, even people on the quote unquote right that grew up in cities like Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, they've never been around it. They've never been exposed to it. And when confronted with that, you have two options. You can either say, all right, I'm going to learn a more, bit more about this or the alternative that I think a a lot of people in the media do dig their heels in and say, no, I don't like guns. I, I don't want to be around them. How do you educate people with a march? I mean, it's one thing to say, yeah, we're here, but the media could just as easily say, oh, they're just, you know, angry and bitter and all of that stuff. Well, what we're hoping to do is have gun owners come from across the country and hopefully more from the general area, right? So people don't have to drive for, for four days. Um, but like I said, be accessible to media. So if the media is really curious, they can come down and they can talk to us. Mm -hmm. We're going to be there. We're going to be conducting interviews. We're going to have film crews there recording the entire event ourselves. Um, and again, we just we just want to be available. And hopefully uh, some pictures will come out, uh, even if it's minimal um, media coverage. At least there'll be some footage being shown. And, uh, and Canadians will see who these terrible gun owners are. They're the mechanic that works on your car or the lawyer that prepared your will or the doctor in ER. You know, we're just regular Canadians. So that's uh, we just have to do something because the persecution against gun owners is unprecedented. I know predicting numbers on a new event, something that has never happened before, is always difficult. So I'll ask the question in a, a bit of a different way here, Rod. What do you think would constitute a success for turnout? Well, I'm not a fan of hyperbole, so I'm not going to say, you know, we're getting 2.2 million gun owners out because that's a total number of gun owners in country. Uh, well, not gun owners, but licensed gun owners. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'd like to get a thousand people there. A thousand people is a big crowd. And one of the other things I'd like to do is contrast that to um, our political adversaries. So let's say the, the, the spin doctors for protection from guns. You know, they had their national day of action. You know, there's going to be action across the country. There's like four people in Calgary, even in their epicenter of Toronto. They probably had 100 people. But yet they tell us relentlessly, uh, ad nauseum, um, oh, Canadians are overwhelmingly in favor of, of people like me getting stepped on, my property taken, and then somehow that's going to stop gang shootings or some guy dressed up as an RCMP officer shooting our fellow citizens. It's ridiculous. So I want to I want to contrast that. So I'd like to I'd like to see at least a thousand people there. How do you keep hopeful? Because I think the one thing when Justin Trudeau won in 2015 and was really uh, aggressively pursuing uh, increased gun control and then got reelected, there were a lot of gun owners, I, I think probably more than, than any group, or at least as much as some groups that were saying, this is it, like we're, we're done. And then after the, the Nova Scotia attack, when that's used as political cover to put forward a, a gun grab through an order in council, I, I mean, a march is great. I, I mean, you, you need a political change, though, do you not? 
You do. The easiest way to get uh, to turn this back um, is to get a, a conservative majority elected. But the problem is, is that I'm, I would say, the second generation of firemen, you know, active activists, right? So back in the 90s, all of this this stuff happened before, and it will all happen again. It, we will fight the same fights over and over and over again. So it's great to get a conservative majority. That's what's needed for on a number of levels, right? Even maybe even to save the economy of the country. There's a number of reasons. Um, but as far as as gun control is concerned, we need that to turn back the clock at least three months, right? Uh, to before this ridiculous gun ban and maybe before Bill C C-71 as well. Mm -hmm. um, but we're taking legal action against the government um, on constitutional violations. And we're hoping that maybe we don't have to fight this fight every 20, 30 years like is happening right now. I want to ask you about the name of it, Integrity March, and, and the, the tagline of this, demanding integrity from legislators. Why is that the word that you align or associate with this cause and, and this march? Well, we named it after our integrity tour way back, which was kind of a, a political stunt during the election to you know just draw attention to the issue. But there's no integrity in Ottawa. And I'll give you an example. This is one of the reasons why people like, like me, why I'm so frustrated and gun owners are frustrated, is Bill Blair tells Canadians that he is absolutely obsessed with the safety of Canadians. And he'll literally yeah. do anything to ensure that Canadians are safe. You know, and that's an interesting thing. And if you, uh, if you look at um, an election promise that the Liberals made back in 2015, it was to spend 350 some odd million dollars on gang, guns and gangs, right? Trying to get these gang members off the street. Well, here we are five years later and they have not even spent, they have not even allocated that $350 million. Yet, look what's happening now. He's, he's, they're handing out tens of billions in every direction every day of the week. And he's willing to risk you know, everything, everything that's associated with a gun grab and the billions that that's going to cost. So there's no integrity. He lies on a daily basis to Canadians. Canadians need to expect more. And I don't know what it's going to take for people to understand that. What is the actual structure of the event going to be? I, I know it's a march, but it's a new event. We don't have previous years to look at. I know I'm going to be there covering it, but what can I expect and, and what can those who attend expect? So as most things that we do at the CCFR, we try to do them differently and better, not always achieving that, but that's the goal. Um, so we are not holding a rally where we have a stage and people listen to, you know, to, to speakers blabbering on for three hours. Um, I, we just we just didn't want to do that. So the whole event is probably going to take an hour. We're going to meet on Parliament Hill. We have a pipe and drum band to lead us. We're going to have signs. We're going to have PPE. We're going to have everything prepared for everyone. We're going to march off the uh, the Parliament grounds down Wellington. We're going to take two lefts and march all the way up Spark Street to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, take two lefts, and then end it back at, uh, at Parliament. So start to finish probably an hour. Um, and we're just going to have um, – we're doing this partially for our own reasons, which are probably not overt. Um, but we're going to – we're hoping to get a lot of coverage. We're hoping to unite gun owners. And we're hoping that Canadians will see that this is just – we're regular people and we don't deserve to be treated like this. We haven't done anything to deserve it. Now, I, I know in the in the U.S. we've seen rallies and marches where people are actually armed for them. And I, I know we have a different uh, system as far as what's allowed and what's not allowed here. But I, I just want to, because I know what the criticisms are going to be to this. This is not a, a show off your guns march. This is a show off who the gun owners of Canada march are. 
100% absolutely no firearms at this event, right? It's that we have a different culture here. Um, and, you know, it's just, yeah, it's not the same at all. And, and you know, what, I appreciate you bringing that to my attention because even in the video that I did, even some of the commentary that I've done so far, people are like, well, no guns, right? It's like, yeah, absolutely no guns. Um, that's not what we want here. We want, we don't want to show Canadians how angry and, and potentially violent we are because that plays directly into the stereotype that the mainstream media and the government have been pumping Canadians that don't know the difference. They've been showing, they've been telling them, oh, these are potentially violent people. We have to disarm them. You know, they're a detriment to the country. Nothing could be further from the truth. And we don't want to play into that stereotype. So if you're going to show up, wear what you wear at work. You know, I'll be dressed like this. You'll be dressed like that. If somebody's a, you know, a nurse, wear your scrubs. If somebody's a, a lawyer, wear your suit. You know, just try to represent who we are as the different demographics that occur in Canada. You mentioned uh, PPE earlier, and I, I have to ask about this. I, I mean, at the risk of getting too off track here, we know that the government has acknowledged that protests do not spread the virus. So in that case, you're you're covered. But uh, there is going to be a, a challenge more than uh, you might have at another point in time of people traveling, people wanting to congregate. Uh, how are you factoring that into the planning? So we are uh, we're providing PPE for everybody. You know, the whole mask issue has has gotten pretty controversial. And as, as everything does, right? And it, seem, it seems like everything's really polarizing in our society in the mm -hmm. last 10 years and getting worse by the day. So what we're saying to, uh, to our marchers is uh, bring a mask. Um, we will have hand sanitizer there. We'll have a thousand masks in case someone forgets it. It's not, <laughs> if you wear a mask, it's not a show of submission. It's just, it's just a show of, um, of, uh, of consideration. You're just being considerate to your fellow marchers Throw the mask on for an hour. If you want to protest with masks off after, you know, do your, do your own thing. But we just want to take all precautions uh, for the safety of our community. And, uh, and the, kind of that's the way that we're approaching it. What would you like to see come of this? I, I know earlier you mentioned having some media attention and exposure and, and show that this group is here. But I, I mean, in your ideal world, is this the kind of thing that you do year after year? Or do you think it's important to have that, that single flash of, of we're here at this point? We won't have any guns in a year. So that's the, the liberals. This is not, you know, it's wow. funny because some aspects of our community are like, well, they're not taking my lever action or they're not taking my pump action. And they couldn't be more wrong because if you look at Australia, it started with handguns. Nobody cared because they didn't shoot handguns. You know, next were, were uh, semi-autos. Well, I don't care because I don't need a gun like that. Nobody needs a gun like that. Uh, but then they came for the lever actions and the pump actions, and now you know. Then everybody's screaming blue murder. Um, this isn't this isn't it. And the people that believe that stuff, how how confident are you that the liberals are going to stop just before they get to the guns that you own? Like what what indicates at all to you that that it's not going to go all the way when they have the chance? So this is in my mind, this is a one-time event. We need this event for other reasons, for our own projects, uh, which will, you know, I can't uh, give any details right now, but this is a one-time event as far as we're concerned. It's not a yearly thing, but uh, but we need to happen and we need people if they're available to come. I, I'm glad you mentioned that idea of where the line stops because I, I did a video a, a little while ago called In Defense of the AR-15 and I, I talked about, I mean, a lot of the issues that you and I are, are very familiar with, you know, about how similar it is to other guns that, that are or were non-restricted and, and I don't want to rehash that, but I, I would encourage people to look it up. But I was actually surprised and, and quite taken aback at, at an, an amount of 
negative pushback I got from gun owners who, and I'm sure you see this as well, I'm a gun owner, but, or I support gun ownership, but they, they, they draw a line there and, and they assume that you're right, that that's kind of the, the unanimous line that everyone will respect. And, and even if you are not a fan of the AR-15, to not realize that there is an incremental force against gun ownership, uh, I think you're out to lunch, quite frankly. You, you are. And that's, uh, I agree entirely. And, and we see that in our community. And we've done a lot of work at the, at the CCFR to try to unite gun owners, right? We've taken, we have television shows on both outdoor networks. We sponsor commercials to let people know, hey, you know, if you think you're going to stop, they're not going to stop. Look at everywhere else that there's been a massive gun grab, it just keeps going because they're always after the next more most dangerous gun. So if they get rid of semi-autos, uh, they're, now they're after rapid fire. Now, if you notice, Bill Blair has changed his language mm-hmm. after the gun ban. He changed it to firearms capable of sustained fire, sustained rapid fire. And so it's not, it's not military-style assault weapons anymore. It's capable of this. And, uh, and even if you look at what the, the, the rules that came out in the gun ban anyway, they're measuring the lethality of firearms based on joules, muzzle energy. And now that took a whole bunch of hunting rifles out. Well, they can keep lowering that number. And then they can keep looking at sustained rapid fire. And next thing you know, you're facing it. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it does – the lack of support internally from our community does get old after a while, and it's very frustrating and I've always, and every time it's been brought up, I, I tell hunters or whoever it is, right, somebody that shoots a break action that doesn't care about anybody else's guns, people like me that work 16 hours a day for years on end and Tracy Wilson and all of our volunteers and organizations like the, the CCFR, when all of our guns are gone, I'm long gone. I'm way overdue to, to, to move on to back to my career and business development as it is. And you're going to fight this by yourself. You're going to be standing there with your gun, fighting it by yourself with no resources like the CCFR. Get involved now. Stand up for your fellow Canadians. Those, our guns are no different than any other gun. We haven't done any more crime than, any, than anyone else has done yeah. with any other firearm. If you ask the police, the majority of hostage takings and domestic violence are, are old hunters with their bolt actions. But I'm not you know, distancing myself from them, right? So yeah. get involved. Quit the nonsense and uh, and support organizations like ours and marches like the one we're going to have in September. Yeah, if you think the same people that want the uh, AR-15 gone don't also want you know your grandpa's single action revolver gone, you're uh, you're sorely mistaken. Well, September 12th is the rally. No, not the rally. The march, the Integrity March. That's right. On Parliament Hill, I have booked my flight. I'll be there, and I'm glad you're doing it, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Rod Giltaka joining me on the line, the CEO and Executive Director of the Canadian Coalition for firearm rights. Thank you very much to you and to uh, your colleague, uh, Tracy, for uh, putting this together. And and thanks, Rod, for coming out today. Thanks, Andrew. And that is, again, September 12th. The details you can find online at firearmrights.ca. Firearmrights.ca, that's CCFR's website. And I am, uh, in the interest of disclosure, a member of the CCFR. I have no leadership role. I've just paid my dues. But I'm also a member of other gun groups as well because I, I feel it is important to support this. And and there was something very compelling and, and actually quite saddening about Rod's line that, you know, in a year there are no more guns. That is the goal that the left in Canada right now 
now is pursuing. So important to take a stand and say, hey, we're here. We're not going anywhere. We have to wrap things up. I guess I'm going somewhere right now, but I'll be back in a couple of days with more of the Andrew Lawton Show. My thanks to Rod and all who tuned into today's program and all of you who are hopefully going to tune into next episode. Who knows what we're going to be talking about, but we'll be back in two days. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you. God bless and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.